If we succeed, the largest transformation of healthcare would be essentially if we could eliminate all chronic diseases. So we spend 86% of our $4 trillion a year in healthcare on chronic diseases. And we know from these phenome measurements that we can actually identify molecules in the blood that tell us you've transitioned to a disease up to four or five years before you clinically diagnose the disease. So this gives us the option to think about therapies to reverse the disease very early and never let it get to a clinical uh, stage. And if we could do that, you would have the end of chronic disease. Welcome to American Dreams. I'm visiting here today with Dr. Lee Hood. Dr. Hood, welcome to today's show. Pleasure to be here. So for the listeners, can you give us some of your background and how you started out in your career and some of the major uh, highlights uh, of your journey? Uh, I could. I uh, was born in Missoula, Montana, grew up in Montana, went uh, as an undergraduate to Caltech to get a good founding in physics and chemistry and biology, went to medical school at Johns Hopkins because I was interested in human biology and figured that was the best way to learn it. After that, I came back to Caltech and did a PhD degree in molecular immunology, understanding uh, molecular aspects of uh, how the immune system works. I then went to NIH for three years during the Vietnam War and was uh, a senior investigator in the Cancer Institute uh, and, and finally decided to go back in 1970 uh, to Caltech, where I was an assistant professor for 22 years, went up through the ranks. And then in uh, 1992, Bill Gates actually uh, persuaded me to move to Seattle and start a brand new type of biology department uh, called uh, Cross-Disciplinary Department uh, named Molecular of biotechnology, and it was enormously successful for eight years, but I I really wanted to build on top of that a systems biology institute, that is looking at biology in a holistic, global manner uh, with big data approaches and things like that. And I found that the uh, University of Washington bureaucracy was pretty challenging to, to uh, build new things upon. So I went and started the Institute for Systems Biology, a nonprofit that pioneered this whole field of systems biology, which is very widely distributed now, 20-some years later and everything. And I spent uh, the next 18 years as its president and, and pushed the uh, for my own personal research, uh, an interest in the complexity of human beings and how to decipher that complexity. And this led to what I've called 
precision population health uh, and starting in starting in about 2015, I started a company called Aravail, which could bring scientific or quantitative wellness to consumers using a data-driven approach, analyzing your genome and your phenome, which I can explain in just a moment, uh, every six months. And over a four-year period, we gathered both 5,000 people and 5,000 data clouds. And those data clouds uh, over the past uh, four or five years have generated 25 major papers and major journals that have given us deep insights into the science of wellness and the science of uh, prevention, prevention of, of disease. And from these beginnings then, I created uh, in 1921 uh, a nonprofit institute called Phenome Health, whose mission basically is to persuade the government to have a second genome-like project entitled the Human Phenome Project, where we'll analyze a million people over a 10-year period to generate data that will both enable us to strikingly improve the quality of their health and, and two, to demonstrate that we can save striking numbers of dollars in healthcare costs as we shift the focus from healthcare from a disease orientation, which is dominant in today's health, to a wellness and prevention orientation. So that's a quick summary of how I've gotten to where I am. You know, it's interesting. I was <clears throat> I was one of the five thousand was in the Airville, uh, one of the Airville clients that had mapped uh, the DNA and the wellness, and we had coaches on the side. So um, I I'm just connecting that today with uh, with us on the show. Um, but thank you. So um, you know, this health and wellness area is a huge area, and you are truly a pioneer in helping to you know, lead science through, um, you know, the, the, the next phase, yeah, moving from uh, prevention of disease to being more proactive. Um, how has our view of wellness changed um, in, the past, in the past years? Well, let me extend that question to the past 5,000 years, okay? Okay. Because it's, it's really interesting. If you go back before the Greeks and ask, what was health? How did they view health or wellness? They had no concept for it because there was, they didn't understand any way you could control it. And if you can't control something, you can't really uh, talk about it at all. And what the Greeks did was really remarkable. They, for the first time, realized that there were three elements to wellness. So one they called the fates. The second they said, it's your behavior. And the third is your environment. And what is ironic is if you change fates to your genome, if we knew your genome plus your behavior plus your environment, that's exactly what the phenome is and what it measures today. 
So in a sense, they hit it exactly right. And in the succeeding 2,500 years, all we did were subtle refinements of your behavior and of your health. So diet, exercise, those kinds of things all really emerged. And as I indicated, the fundamental change that has really transformed how we think about health came in about 2015 when we took this data approach to following and assessing and optimizing the health trajectory of each individual, which was reflected in this company uh, called Aerofail that, that you actually participated in. And I would argue if we succeed in transferring the focus on healthcare from its current disease focus to a wellness and prevention focus, that'll be the largest paradigm shift ever seen in healthcare. And I think what's really very interesting about this data-rich healthcare is it can be applied to the more conventional healthcare. And that deals with what the Greeks did. It deals with diet, with exercise, with sleep, with stress, those kinds of things. What a data-driven approach can do for you is you can individualize and optimize for each of those things how the individual should perform, what kind of exercises, how you should focus your diet, what nature of sleep and extent of sleep. All of those are things we can now begin to optimize with a data-driven understanding of the complexity of the human body. You know, you brought up phenomics before. I want to I revisit this. So what exactly is phenomics and why is that important for wellness? That's a great question. So the genome is the DNA that's present in your uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes in every single cell. And what the DNA is, is the source code for your normal development and aging, okay? What the phenome is, is how you appear at all the different stages of your life, uh, starting as an infant and going all the way through to uh, old age. And so, in a sense, you have an infinite number of phenomes, right? Well, we can measure the relative contribution of three things to your phenome at any point in time. That is the contribution of your genome, the contribution of your behavior, and the contribution of your environment. And essentially, the measurements we make for the phenome assess those three types of things. And what we're doing is learning to integrate them together so they give us a holistic picture of what you are and where we need to take you next to optimize health, to optimize wellness. So what is the largest transformation of healthcare? Well, I think, again, if we succeed, the largest transformation of healthcare would be essentially if we could eliminate all chronic diseases. So we spend 86% of our $4 trillion a year in healthcare 
on chronic diseases. And we know from these phenome measurements that we can actually identify molecules in the blood that tell us you've transitioned to a disease up to four or five years before you clinically diagnose the disease. So this gives us the option to think about therapies to reverse the disease very early and never let it get to a clinical uh, stage. And if we could do that, you would have the end of chronic disease. There's a term out there called P4 medicine. What is that? So when I started the Institute for Systems Biology, I focused the science on biology and later on disease. But in thinking conceptually about healthcare, I came to the conclusion that healthcare should have four central features prediction, prevention, personalization, and participation. Okay. And the first three features prediction, prevention, and personalization they're about science, they're about what you have to do to. Uh, change individuals and so forth. But the fourth B, participatory, centers on the question of how do we persuade the individual patient, the physician, the healthcare leaders, the healthcare technologists, the healthcare regulators, uh, and, and politicians that to participate in this new kind of um, of healthcare that's focused on wellness and on prevention. And that is infinitely more difficult to achieve than the first three Ps. We know how to do the science, how to persuade people that they should do what's good for them is a very different kind of thing. And especially it's easier to persuade kids. So I would argue K through 12 education is really important in beginning to have people understand how they can control and direct their own health. And in fact, I started with ISB in 2000, immediately put together a six person group that handled K through 12 education, and they've done that for the last uh, 23 years now. And this past year, working together with students and teachers, we've put together a 20-module course for juniors or seniors on health that tells you about systems biology and systems medicine. And these modules will teach these kids more than 95% of physicians know about the future of medicine. And we've created it in a modular way so that it can be exported to other places. And of course, I've written a textbook now on systems biology and systems education that'll be very useful for teachers that want to teach this course as a, as a kind of how-to book and everything. So. Uh, so I think the whole process of education is key. 
but it's kids are open, flexible, and willing to to believe. How do you handle adults that spend ninety percent of their television time watching football and baseball and basketball and that's uh, a different kind of challenge, and uh, and uh, we have ideas about how to do it, and we we could talk about those. But uh, you, you know, may want to talk more about the science. You know, it, it, it's interesting the collection of all the big data and and the gathering of knowledge. Uh, you know, it 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 helps us to understand. You know how we got there. And I think you hit on something very important, uh, which is where I what I say the wisdom of of healthcare, and that is the application of the knowledge of how do you get yeah. the old dog to learn new tricks and exactly behavior. So um, I'm going to look forward to those little uh, tidbits as we um, as as we learn more uh, through well, the research. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, so, I've done two more things. One. Yeah, I have a book coming out from Harvard University Press that's that is uh, called "The Age of Scientific Wellness" that describes this whole vision and what you can do today and how we have what we have to do to move it forward to uh, a, a more complete uh, uh, view of uh, the healthcare opportunities. And uh, I hired a Italian film documentary specialist to do a film on 5,000 years of wellness, starting with, as I said, the Greeks, basically, and coming up to the forward time, but putting it in a artistic and attractive, holistic sense that maybe can reach out to some of these adults and touch their artistic soul, if not their intellectual, scientific soul, and so forth. What are the largest barriers uh, to data-driven health today? What, what are the biggest barriers in health today? Yes. I would say the largest barriers have to do with our personal choices about what we eat, how we exercise, how we sleep, um, how we expose ourselves to stress, and how we fail to realize that all of those things can be controlled. And with the data-driven health, we can go way beyond kind of conventional things and move you to a point where you're going to age far more gracefully and I think in time, we'll be able to say to most people, look, if you practice scientific wellness, we can almost certainly guarantee you an extra 20 years of productive life where you're mentally agile, where you're physically capable, and where you can be excited about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And a really interesting question then arises, if I give you 20 extra years of life, what are you going to do with it? And I think part of having that potential is you have to find something to do that's really going to excite you. And if playing golf for 20 years 
is that thing, that's great. You'll live 20 and you'll, you'll be able to play golf for 20 years. But it may be possible that many people would want to do more creative and original and uh, interactive kinds of things. And all those possibilities open up as well. And I think you're hitting on a very important aspect of aging. I, I can tell you that my father was diagnosed with terminal, uh, uh, is a terminal condition given three years to live. And then all of a sudden he went on hospice and uh, after six years on hospice, they kicked him out of hospice because they said hospice is not for people who are getting better. <laughs> and and so as we talked about it, he says, he says, you got to find purpose in life. He says, I just got better because exactly. I found exciting That's things exactly to do. exactly right. Yeah. So See, I think one of the dangers of retirement is you lose the major vector of purpose you've had for most of your life. And most people are just not prepared for, gosh, I have all this. I mean, and they think they are, but when it really comes down to it, it isn't all that satisfying just to play golf and tennis. Okay. What mm -hmm. else are you going to do? What? I mean, you, you need to be challenged intellectually as well as physically to be happy. And in my view, anyway. Well, Dr. Hood, it's been a pleasure having you with us today here on the show. And I, I want to just wrap up with the final question, though. It's kind of a review of the things that we've talked about already. But how will data-driven health deal with five challenges of contemporary health uh, care, such as quality, aging population, explosion of chronic disease, spiraling costs, and racial inequality? Well, that's a, a, a mouthful question, I must say. I, I think data-driven health will increase the quality because it will drive all of us toward uh, a reality of wellness. And most of us today are probably at 30% of our wellness potential, and we can raise you and elevate you, and it's that that's going to give you this extra 20 years of life later on, okay? I think, uh, and, and the idea that we can prevent chronic diseases is going to transform the quality of our life. I mean, a third of the people have either prediabetes or diabetes. Suppose that goes away and we don't have to worry about that anymore. Obesity and, and uh, cardiovascular disease and, and, the most terrifying of all are neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, which rob you of your, your intellect and not just your physicality. The second thing is, uh, how do we deal with the whole aging process? Well, I, I mentioned to you that from the data, we've been able to get an algorithm that lets us determine one's biological age. And to show the younger you are relative to your chronologic age, the better you're aging. And to show that the elements we use to calculate that metric can be used to optimize the aging process for each individual. So the idea that we, for, for example, in Airville, one of the calculations we did is we took all 5,000 people and we looked at their biological age at the beginning and at the end, 
And what we were able to show is the average person lost about a year and a half of biological age for each year they stayed in the Aerofail program. And one of my friends lost 10 years of biological age. So, I mean, what that means in practical terms is A, you're younger, and B, you're farther away from ever having to worry about chronic diseases. So number three, the question you asked is chronic disease. How will we deal with that? Well, if we can detect it early and reverse it before it ever comes up clinically, we've, we've dealt with chronic diseases. And that's exactly what we plan to do with the million-person project I'd mentioned. Uh, the idea of costs that we're spending $4 trillion a year that we spend more than any other nation in the top 20, and yet the quality of our healthcare is at the very bottom, says that we need to restructure our healthcare in major ways away from uh, a payment system where the physician deals with patients one at a time and, and promotes interactions as much as possible because they make more money to a system in which the physician is given a population of patients to care for and told your payment is in proportion to how well you care for uh, the thousand patients you have as a population. So that, that's how I think we're going to have to change things. And then finally, it, we've heard a lot recently about the fact that the data on which medicine is based is largely selected from Caucasian males. And we have to diversify that with regard to sex, but we have to diversify it with regard to race, uh, African-Americans and Latinos and Indian-Americans and the like. And again, the million-person project that we're generating is going to recruit those people in proportion to their ratios in the American population as a whole. So I think we can deal with those racial barriers. So the data-driven approach to medicine will let us absolutely transform in every way what it means to be healthy. Thank you, Dr. Hood. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here on American Dreams today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> 